On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. Those, Israel, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Barney, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Barney, Kenanai. They cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmael, Barney, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they... Our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion, 
appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hand, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warns them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who, who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hands of, the, of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. 
For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until now. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. I want you to go back to a time that you're not going to remember. Um, when you were between newborn and three months old. You were like this kind of little nocturnal alien. Everything was mysterious, fascinating, overwhelming to you. You had no idea what was going on, really. You didn't even realize you were a separate person. At first, you could feel, but not think. In the first two months, you were attracted to bright light, to primary colors, to stripes, to dots, and to patterns. And the human face was the first object that you recognized as an object. As you developed and grew, you learnt by observing the world, trying to detect patterns, predict what comes next, like food after crying, and pain after a bump, and burps after fizzy. You became aware of the world of your home. But then, as you developed of the big world outside of your home, as you grew up, your street, your town, your country, our world. And you became aware of people, of family and friends, of crowds and all sorts. All the time, your knowledge expanding. And somewhere along the way, maybe for you it's right before you can ever remember for others, you were later to the party. You became aware of God. The greatest reality of all. 
And you began to realize that your reality, your world, your story, is part of, it's a small part of a much, much bigger story than your own. The Bible tells us that it is a story that had no start in eternity past, and it will have no end in eternity future. And your life is in fact like this, this tiny, tiny dot on an infinite line of reality. A love story that always has been, always will be. There is an eternal God who in his kindness created you for his praise, for his glory. We are not alone in the universe. And that is why at the very start of our reading uh, this morning, said in 445 BC, in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 5, the people are told to, have a look at it, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting past to everlasting future. He's God forever and ever. Here were people who observed the world and they came to see that their reality, their world, their story was part of a bigger story. The story of the everlasting God who caused them to praise him because he's made himself observable in ways that we can discover. Unlike a friend of mine who went on a spiritual retreat recently with a Buddhist guru, and he explained it to me like this. Will we help to meditate, emptying our minds to connect with the great source and spirit of life? You would say it was the Lord. It's all the same. It's whoever you want God to be. And it connects with a a young person I heard once explaining spirituality like this. Spirituality would be more about yourself and what you eternally want to believe. But truth is, the eternal God is not someone we can kind of create in our own minds, as someone we feel or want it or her or him to be. God created an observable universe that we can actually engage with. And that points to his divine majesty. But more than that, he acts in history in observable ways. He is not a figment of our imagination or clever thoughts or desires. He is the God who is there. The God who is here. Who can be known. And the right response, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not yet a Christian, is to praise your eternal God. Praise your eternal God with the people in verse 5 to see that your reality, your world, your story is part of a far bigger story. Live before the God who is there. The Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to just see what does it look like for the people of Judah in 445 BC. Well, they'd returned from exile in Babylon. 
the rebuild of the city and the temple, that had been completed. And in chapter 8 last week, we, we saw thousands of people in Jerusalem for the New Year celebrations. And as they read God's words, they became clearer about how their lives, their story, fit into God's far bigger story. And there was both grief at their sin and rejoicing at God's grace. Well, in chapter 9, the week-long New Year celebrations, they've all finished. And with just a day's break, the crowds again descend on Jerusalem. And here they are in chapter 9. Here's what happens when we begin to see that the story of our lives fits within God's eternal, bigger story. Look at them in chapter 9, verse 1. The Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, putting dust on their heads. These are outward signs of inward sorrow. Verse 2, they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. And in verses 4 and 5, as they stand up and praise the Lord their God, who is from everlasting to everlasting, they are contemplating who God is, the God who is there. Here is what it looks like to know him. And so in verses 6 through to right through to 31, it is in fact a retelling of this bigger story. God's bigger story, as they see that God's great eternal reality is the reality that their lives fit into. And there's confession of their sin before God, and there's confession of God's grace towards them. It's both of those things. We're going to see that. When we see God's bigger story that our life is lived within, here's the first thing we see in this passage. We see that God is the God who saves his people. He saves his people. Whilst God's story is eternal, our story starts with creation. And that's where they start in verse 6. Look at verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. British physicist Stephen Hawkins once described our sun as an average star in the outer suburbs of an ordinary spiral galaxy, which is itself only one of about a million million galaxies in the observable universe. From stars that shine 10 million times brighter than our sun and radio galaxies that extend Six million light years to the beauty of our little inhabitable planet Earth with its finely balanced environment sustaining thousands of varieties of vegetation and animal life to the intricacies of the human body with its billions of cells. Evidence points not to meaningless chance but to intelligent design. And as the people of Jerusalem stand to praise the eternal God, 
they're contemplating that their creator is in fact their savior. Have a look at it. We're going we're gonna to need to skim down this morning pretty quickly. Verses 7 and 8, their national story starts with one Middle Eastern man. He'd be the father of many, inherit a dreamland, and bless the world. But half a century later, Abraham's family had grown to a big nation, but they were a slave nation in Egypt. Verses 9 to 12 reflect on the amazing days when God rescued them, stepping into history, tweaking his laws of nature, performing miracles against Pharaoh, king of Egypt even carving a path through the Red Sea for them to escape, defeating the Egyptian army and leading them through a desert. So that before worldwide mass communication and 24-7 news feeds, God made a name for himself. He became famous as the one who rescues his people and also as the God who speaks to and cares for his people. Look at verse 13 and 14. We take effort to climb mountains. You see there, God comes down to, the eternal God comes down to Mount Sinai and he spoke to them from heaven, giving them his good laws, his commands, so they might know him. And verse 15, when they were hungry and thirsty in the desert, God miraculously provided for all two million of them. And God stepping into history into their story to save, foreshadowed a far greater stepping into history to save. We said our history is B.C. A.D. because the coming of Jesus is the center point of history. One of Graham Kendrick's greatest songs of the 1980s says this, From heaven you came, helpless babe. Entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve. And give your life that we might live. In first century Jerusalem, Jesus' hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered on a Roman cross. And it was so that you might be saved, I might be saved. Freed from a slavery that's far worse than the Israelites had in Egypt. Slavery to our sin that condemns us to hell. I wonder if you can see that your life is in fact part of a far bigger story. Your life, my life, is like this tiny dot on an infinite line of reality. A love story that always has been and always will be. There is an eternal God who in his kindness created you for his praise and for his glory. We've rebelled against God. We've become enslaved to our sin. But in his love, God sent his son into the story, into history in first century Palestine to die on a cross so that for everyone, but only for those, who turn from their sinful rebellion against him and trust alone in his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. And they get rescued. Rescued from the eternal judgment on our sin that we deserve. And saved to praise him for his great salvation 
our eternal creator, saviour, God. What do you do with, what will you do with, what are you doing with the offer of God's loving salvation? Don't let it be that the way that that your little story fits into this big eternal love story, the offer of God's love, don't let it be that the way that you fit into that was that you rejected it. Never saw your need of it. And living under his just wrath for all eternity. Let it be that the story of your life fits into this wonderful, eternal, big love story of the offer of God's love by you receiving it. Trusting him as your savior, giving your life to him as your Lord, living in his blessing now and for all eternity. He is the God who saves. But secondly, see God's bigger story that your life is lived within and you see that God is patient with his people. He's patient with his people. Someone has said that um, you can learn many things from children. How much patience you have, for instance. Some of you can relate to that. Um, and I want to say, look, you can learn many things about God in how he treats his children. How much patience he has, for example. If you skim down verses 16 to 25, you, you can see that there's a contrast between what the ancestors of these people did and what God does. Verse 16, they were arrogant and stiff-necked, they were kind of stubborn, disobedient. 17, they were like naughty kids. They didn't listen. They forgot all that God had done for them. They didn't trust God to get them to the promised land. They tried to turn to slavery in Egypt. Verse 18, they even worshipped a calf idol and even blasphemed against God. But look at verse 17, what God is like. But you're a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. And verses 19 to 21, because God is compassionate for 40 years, he patiently led them through the desert, instructed them by his spirit, miraculously provided food and water and clothing. Until verse 22 to 25, 1406 BC or thereabouts, God's time came to give them the land of Canaan that he promised them, judging the corrupt kings and nations who once lived there. And so verse 25 tells us they captured fortified cities, fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. You know, Israel's history with God was like a father lavishing generous love on a child, patiently bearing with poor behavior, only for this love to be rejected with teenage grunts and rebellion. I wonder if you have teenage grunted at God recently. Love you, teens, by the way. We love you. 
but we've all done it. Have you teenage grunted at God recently? Where when he's surrounded your life with so many blessings, and if you're a Christian, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. See, truth is, my own experience, I know I have a tendency to adult arrogance, to stiff-necked, stubborn disobedience towards God. Like a naughty kid, not really listening. Forgetting the goodness of God to me. I'm often faithless, proudly self-reliant, idolatrous, making more of God's good gifts than I should. And quietly in my spirit, I can teenage grunt at God. And so I'm so thankful that God is patient. That verse 17 tells me he is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Let's beware of letting life's trials, injustices and disappointments and suffering blind us to this. Your life, my life, is lived within God's bigger, eternal love story. And he is patient with us. But God loves his people too much to let us remain wayward from him, distant in spirit from him. And so here's our third thing. When we see God's bigger story that our life is lived within, we see that he disciplines his people. He disciplines his people. In light of God's goodness, look at how these people treat God in verse 26. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. What is God to do with them? Well, verses 27 to 28 describe the period of Israel's history recorded in the Old Testament book of the Judges. And it's this, this tragic repeated cycle of God's, uh, God's um, blessing on them. But their sin against God, and then God's judgment on them, and then them praying and crying out to God, and then God rescuing them and blessing them, and then them sinning again and them and the whole thing just goes round and round and round throughout Judges until the time of the kings. But these two are a whole mixture of good and bad leaders. And the best of them, we see they're flawed. And this whole period of their history is summed up in verse 30. Look at verse 30. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets Yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. And sure enough, that's what happened. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. They were taken into captivity. And then 136 years later, in 586 BC, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. And the people of Judah were taken into captivity. But look at verse 31. But in your great mercy, 
You did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And it was the mercy and the grace of God that these people had returned from exile and rebuilt their city in the temple. And they were now worshipping God back there in a repaired city and temple. When our children were young, we had a naughty step for time out. I'm not sure that's in vogue anymore. We used to do that. Um, they didn't like it, but it kind of worked. Um, but before the, the naughty step, well, there was the infamous warning, I'm counting to three. And on more than one occasion, when I, well, clearly failed to understand the mind of a child and I had annoyed them, I would hear, Daddy, I'm counting to three. And yes, I did do time on the naughty step. I remember in my early 20s, um, having a conversation with my dad, um, and we were talking about discipline and how they disciplined us when we grew up. Um, and I remember ribbing him when he said that he'd always disciplined us because he loved us. <laughs> um, you know, discipline never feels like love at the time, does it? It just doesn't. And my dad wasn't just right. He was being like God. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews says in chapter 12, Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And I want us to be clear here, the difference between discipline and punishment. Some of you have said to me, when life has been hard, is God punishing me? If you're a Christian, what has happened to all of the eternal punishment that you actually do deserve? Well, it's all been taken at the cross. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you don't have any punishment to face. Jesus took it all. He paid it all. So God doesn't punish his people. He'll punish those who turn away from Christ. But not his people. But he does discipline us. He does chasten us. And we need to see that, that everything that happens in our life, it's not random. It does have purpose. God, God has a loving purpose in everything that happens in your life. We may struggle to see that at times. But he does have a loving purpose in all things. So when we're going through a hard time, well, well is it discipline? Is it not? Well, maybe it is. It, it, it's hard to tell. Maybe it is discipline, but, but certainly everything is training, for sure. But when God disciplines you, maybe through hardship or trial, or when he rebukes you in his word, or through the preaching of the word, and you sense the Holy Spirit convicting of your sins, making you squirm and feel uncomfortable, highlighting sin in your life, calling you to repent and believe again, or remember that the Lord disciplines those he loves for our good. And pray. And we're going to end here on this this morning. Um, pray to your faithful God. So we praise our eternal God. We pray to our faithful God. That is where they end here in verses 32 to 37. 
So the first thing they do is they ask God to keep his promises. Look at that in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, and our kings, our leaders, our priests, the prophets, our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And then they acknowledge their personal guilt, secondly, but God's justice. Verse 33, in all that's happened to us, you've remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. And then expand on that. Thirdly, they ask God to see the distress they're in and to deliver them. Verse 36, but see where we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave to our ancestors. And then they, they pour out before God the fact that they're kind of back in the land, but they're paying tribute to the back to into Persia. And they end by saying, we're in great distress. And whilst over the years there were victories over oppressing nations, it wasn't until 500 years later that this prayer for deliverance was answered when Jesus, God in flesh, was born into our world. And ordinary people of Judea, Ordinary folks, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, and foreigners, wise men, saw with their own eyes, and they held in their arms the Lord their God, the eternal, everlasting God who is from ever and ever. They saw the God who is there. They saw the God who came here. And they saw their reality, their world, their story, is part of this bigger love story. The story of the everlasting creator, Savior God. And of course, in the first century world, the people of Judah, in Jesus' day, in Jerusalem, they were no longer oppressed by the kings of Persia, but by the Caesars of Rome. And the hope was that the promised Messiah would break the rule of Rome and free them from their, their oppressors. But God had a far, far bigger story that he was writing. Jesus' mission was to free people the world over from the oppression of sin that enslaves and alienates us from the God who made us. In Jesus, the eternal God who is there came here. His life, death, and resurrection is part of a story that had no start it, in eternity past. It will have no end in eternity future. And today, our lives, your life, my life, is like a tiny dot on this one eternal line of reality of this love story that always has been and always will be. There is an eternal God who in his kindness created you for his praise, for his glory. We are not alone in the universe. God sent his son. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. I'm going to ask the band to come to the front. Um, and what we're going to do, we're going to do what the people of Judah did back in 445 BC. We're going to stand up and we're going to praise the Lord our God who is from everlasting to everlasting, 
who is God forever and ever. Let's stand. And as we sing together, I want us to see this. I want to see that our story, the small story of our lives, is lived within this much bigger story. Before the God who saves his people, some of us need awakening to that today. Before the God who is patient with his people, some of us need assuring of that today. Before the God who disciplines his people, some of us need warning of that today. That we might pray to our faithful God for his salvation, thankful for his patience, and repentant under his discipline.